Hello, listeners. I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 140 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, in which we're going to be talking about Costa Gavras's State of Siege, a film released on December 30th, 1972. And it does indeed bring us to the very end of our coverage of 1972 films. This is the final episode of season four of our podcast, which has been going on for like the last three years or something like that. Um, It's taken us quite a while to uh, work our way through all the incredible films released by the Criterion Collection in 1972. Uh, Films from that year, of course, the Criterion Collection didn't exist in 1972. But in any case, we are here to both kind of wrap up a coverage of the trilogy of political thrillers, directed by Costa Gavras uh, in 1969 with Z, 1970 The Confession, and then here 1972 State of Siege. And with me are a couple guests, uh, one of which, Trevor Barrett. Uh, you've been with me on this journey through these first three films of Costa Gavras, so welcome back and thanks for joining me to complete our trilogy coverage this morning. Thank you for having me, David. Yes, definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts about this. And then another familiar voice and a frequent guest on the podcast, but we haven't discussed Costa Gavras before, but it's Brad McDermott. Brad, welcome back and happy to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great. I can't wait to uh, talk about Costa Gavras. This is my first. I, I just love his films and it's so great to finally be able to chat about one. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is definitely one that I think packs a lot of uh, punch and, you know, speaks to the situation of our own times. I mean, we may or may not decide to get into current events. I think there's a opportunity to do so. We'll see where we want to go with that. But uh, the, the topic state of siege refers to kind of a police state activity and the insurgency and the rebellion against that by uh, people who feel like they're on the outside or the uh, kind of the oppressed side of the conflict. And so that's what State of Siege uh, is is dealing with, is a very political-themed film talking about the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the powerless, or uh, at least you know people who perceive themselves to be somewhat powerless and the steps that they take, uh, the, the measures that they resort to, to try to get their voice heard and to uh, pursue what they consider to be you know, a more equitable and, and just distribution of resources and freedoms and and rights and all of that so yeah i'm brad i'm going to kind of kick it over to you tell us a little bit about this film maybe sum up the the sort of the 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 capsule version of uh what this film is about and then we'll just get the conversation rolling so uh this is um state of siege so this is costa gravis's film he made uh, was it after zed and before the confession I think it was somewhere couched in there. No, it was the third of the three. It's it's the oh, last the third. One, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so this film takes place in a uh, sort of unknown um, South, South American country. It's not really named straight up, but it's like it kind of gives it away because like the very first shot is of this car and <laughs> yes. the license plate on the back of the car says Montevideo. So kind of tips you off that it might be Uruguay, but he never really names it up front. And um, this is, so this is a movie about a dead body. So it starts off with the dead body of uh, Philip Michael Santore, who is a U.S. diplomat, um, and he works for a uh, U.S. company that is, sets up sort of organizations in South America to help the local police with advanced interrogation methods. I'm using air quotes in this, um, which Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. torture. Um, And so he's dead. And over the course of this film in kind of a sort of flashback present day structure, it kind of goes a bit back and forth. We find out the sequence of events that lead up to this man's death and how they relate to a, a local, um, kidnapping guerrilla uh terror i guess terrorist organization tupamaro uh the name is tupamaro and sort of their relation it's uh, this film sort of is a bit like zed as well where it doesn't really have a protagonist it sort of jumps around between all these different conversations and how this kidnapping weaves itself into the larger social and political landscape of the country that this fictitious country that it's in 
but that sets it up very well. Yeah, we've got a conflict here, like you say, the, the dead, uh, the corpse of Santore. Uh, and <clears throat> yeah, you said he, he works for a company. I would say he works more like for an agency. He's like an advisor. Right. He provides. I wasn't sure if it was aid. like a company or an agency yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. U.S. Aid is is actually a, a real institution, at least at the time it was. Is you know the U.S. government would sponsor people to go to other countries and help with uh, humanitarian efforts. You know, put in drinking water systems or you know, better roads. So there's a a humanitarian cover that I think was pretty important to establish that Centauri was operating under that pretext. There were some other things going on, but uh, that's kind of revealed over the course of the film. So Trevor, let's get you in the conversation. Tell us mm-hmm. just a little bit about your impressions of this film and, and maybe pick up on anything that Brad said. Yeah, so <laughs> I still remember the first time I watched this, was when, which was when the, the two criterion discs came out of the confession and state of siege and i'm thinking oh good another film with uh you know one of my favorite uh french movie stars yves montan Mm -hmm. and he's dead and right when the credits go over you know i mean how how do you start much for suspense you know right (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i thought whoa that's an interesting thing to have him be the dead body in the car um, after we've seen um, uh, all of the establishing of this state of siege, I mean, you see at the very beginning, all of these uh, men with guns walking around on rooftops in this mm-hmm. city. And yeah. there's Yves Montan dead. And I I was in it from the beginning because I, you know, this was the third of the of them that I saw. I started, um, you know, watched them in order, essentially, over, over the course of time. And... Man, Costa Gavras just knows how to create a great movie. I mean, you'd think mm-hmm. it would be difficult to keep up the suspense and to keep up all of our interest. Why does he start with us knowing that this uh, U.S. agent is is dead? But it's all about all of the relationships. It's all about learning about his cover and why he's there and why he's really there. And it's learning about the people who who have abducted him in order to hopefully get some leverage in this relationship. And then about the people who are like, well, we're not going to cede to your demands, even though you're threatening to kill this man. And we know it's going to happen. So we're just sitting there. It it, it really does ratchet up the suspense because we, we, we don't necessarily want them to kill him. And a lot of that's because, Costa Gavras builds up our sympathy with the the folks who have abducted him. They are nonviolent. They they did this kind of as a desperate move, and their bluff is being called. Mm. And again, we know how we know how it ends. And so, what a way to create a film! This was this was not my favorite of them. I think the other two have actually more um, things that just appeal to my sense of, I guess, some of my some of the things that, that uh, I'll just, I'll just say this, they appeal to the things that appeal to me, <laughs> but, uh, but on my rewatch, I was, I was uh, delighted to remember how much I really did love this film and how strong it is. This is just a super strong trilogy. I loved everything about it. The, the reveal of his corpse at the beginning, like that they don't hide. Is he, or isn't he going to survive this? I think is plays also into the like absurdity and a bit of the dark humor like we'll probably go into this a bit later but that that there's an inevitability about this no matter how long you're watching you know that this isn't going to work out very well for him so it kind of adds this this sort of uh gloom to to the entire proceedings yeah yeah that state of siege really is a very appropriate title it's a pretty direct translation from the french and it talks about basically the oppression that everybody's going through i mean there there's a an act that is performed this this kidnapping of, of three individuals by this group it seems like mostly younger people that there's kind of a not only a class divide but perhaps a generational divide as well between the older you know generation that's in power uh, backed up by uh, both the U.S. foreign aid and kind of a military regime, and the young people who say, "Wait a minute, you know, there's got to be a better way," you know. But but everybody is really stuck here because once these three men are kidnapped, once the Tupamaros make their demand, 
then we're in this kind of stalemate. There's no easy exit for everybody. Everybody is besieged by their decisions of what they're going to do about this this predicament that they're in. It's also worth pointing out that these this film is very directly based on uh, you know real life events that had happened just a few years prior in the nation of Uruguay with an American advisor who was down there. Okay, so Daniel Mitrione is was down there, and, and he did die under circumstances very similar to what's portrayed in the film. So they didn't use his actual name. They didn't name the country where this happened. But the parallels are almost, you know, well, they're, they're, they're very specific and, and impossible to deny that this is the basis. Uh, so, so there is there is kind of a, a, a and like the confession and like Z or Z and this is <laughs> the American Canadian <laughs> division here, uh, bred there up up there in Toronto. Um, you know, they're all based on real events, so I think they have that verisimilitude that is was pretty engaging to audiences at the time, because they were not just politically minded thrillers, which there had been plenty of over the decades, but they really were were pretty critical of the of the Western powers, if you will, of the, or mm-hmm. of American powers, um, especially this one, because it is talking about, you know, the, you know, the cover that United States foreign aid gives to, you know, very oppressive and brutal practices, um, you know, as you said, Brad, enhanced interrogation techniques, torture. Um, and he was there, uh, Mitrione was down there, uh, even though there's there's debate, there's controversy as to how affiliated or how far he went in the portrayal of the film, it's pretty clear that he was down there in Uruguay, giving advice to the police, providing the equipment. And you see that one scene where they're opening the suitcases and they've got their little devices. They're like kids with a new you know video game system, like kind of excited and eager and kind of pranking each other with little electrical shocks and laughing because. All of a sudden, they've got this new power by which they're going to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, reinforce their control over this society as they sense that there's a, an escalating threat with this young revolutionary group. So, you know, so there's the real life politics, but there's also the controversy that that kind of accompanied this film. Uh, George Stevens, a great director and the, the uh, head of the American Film Institute (AFI). Um, had had planned to show this film as part of a festival sponsored by that organization at the Kennedy Center. Uh, but when he recognized the themes of political assassination and specifically, I think, the, the implications of kind of uh, brutality within the American foreign aid system, uh, he decided to cancel the film's screening. And of course, that just drew all kinds of attention to it and made it mm-hmm. a little bit of a cause for people who wanted to support not only the film itself, but also free speech and principle and, and the ability to, you know, criticize our government. And that, that's a, that's the one of the hallmarks of a, of a free society is that you don't have to deny the truth of what's going on, or at least you can raise difficult questions and and have discussions about you know controversial topics without fear of recrimination or censorship or or legal prosecution. So there's a lot going on around this film, and uh, you know it's it it is it's it's, it's a pretty effective piece of entertainment. You might even say entertainment for people on the sort of left side of the political spectrum, but I think it's also pretty well-rounded because it doesn't really lift the Tupamaro up as these noble heroic revolutionaries. They're, they're forced into a desperate situation and then they take a pretty vicious, brutal action against this man who, you know, perhaps was doing things that were morally reprehensible, but he was still a human being, a husband, a father of, of several children. And, you know, as portrayed by Yves Montand, a very dignified, suave, attractive person just as, as a gentleman um you know he he's he's got a mind and a thought and a reason for doing what he does so um brad tell me a little bit about how you felt they handled sort of the, the political um d- divide here or you know, the the both sides uh, aspects of of who's supporting what arguments and, and and how they're how they're being portrayed so i thought it was kind of like it was sort of he takes sort of a, a a big step back and has sort of an objective view of all of this. And you can like I, I feel that Costa Gravis is very much in sympathy most with the 
kidnappers um just because the the we see the violence they do like the tor- there's a significant torture scene in this movie mm-hmm. it's not very long but it's incredibly graphic it has a, it had some you know manchurian candidate chills down my spine when i yeah. watched it and because he doesn't blink from showing you that so right away you're not with uh you uh the um the main character yeah, his name keeps escaping me. Santore? <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're uh, mm-hmm. Santore. You're not uh, right away not with him because like that is horrific, right? And mm-hmm. but at the same time as you said, like they do end up killing him and so they turn from a non-violent group to a very much violent group. And um those principles like the, the film is kind of judging those principles as well. Like you know, these this torture is an act of violence, but so then is this murder. So where is like where does everyone stand? Like what what kind of what kind of uh, ground does anybody really have firm to stand on and and say like you know we so these are our beliefs and they are you know who has the moral authority? I guess that's what I'm mm-hmm, trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I I always feel that like he's even the way he films this movie is constantly with that sort of super objective lens where he's not really married to a protagonist to feel deep empathy for and root for. It is always like this handoff kind of feeling. You have all of these characters who represent these different institutions. There's like that journalist we follow around for a while and the, we all, mm-hmm. all follow the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the kidnappers um there's that one great bus sequence where we're following him for a bit and so there's even the the great political uh, scene inside the the actual like um parliament i don't know what the name Mm -hmm. of it for uruguay is yeah the legislative body but yeah yeah, the legislative congress you've got the seats right Mm -hmm. yeah the congress yeah where we actually like we're on the floor and like the camera is parked right in the middle of this floor as if we were like the speaker of the house and we're like panning back and forth as everybody's making these like arguments and counter arguments on the different sides of the actual political spectrum. So I even love the, like just a little touch of someone on the balcony is like drawing, like the actual is coloring in the actual seats of like who's left and who's right. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) the film just has all, there's all these like techniques that visual techniques that uh, Costa Gravis is adding to just have that one little extra step back from being too much emo- like on one side of this thing. Yeah. yeah Trevor, what are your some of the thoughts on, on the, the political angles and how they're managed here? I think it's a, an interesting film that pushes, you know, and Costa Gavras is, as Brad was just saying, does all kinds of visual things to show. This is so much about how each of them are trying to position themselves in, in these situations. Mm-hmm. He'll in, in his frames, he'll put, he'll show the power dynamics and they shift in some of the frames, you know, someone who was weak and who was kind of uh, framed to be submissive, you know, just in the positioning of the of the 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 scene uh, in in a prior scene suddenly becomes the dominant character in a scene, and just shows that you know we again we know who's dead, we know where this is going, so this film becomes more about not just how we get there. Uh, but about the power dynamics of the various parties that get us there. And there's a sense of inevitability because of the death at the beginning. And that's not just inevitable that this USAID employee is going to die. It's inevitable that the guerrilla group is going to kill him. And we see that they, they've taken some steps that just put them on that slope. It's inevitable that his country is going to uh, hang him out to dry. It is inevitable that there are going to be all kinds of misunderstandings and and uh, yet not very many moments where that is going to change. You know that that is that is the track that we are on, and so it's a, it's about these little interactions and about the power dynamics between them. You know any of the any of the actors that are in in the the scene at any time. And Costa Gavras editing in this going back and forth um, in in time and back and forth between you know various groups of characters, 
is just it's it's incredible how clear he makes all of this you know how easy this is to follow mm-hmm. while being very complicated and not losing the complicated nature of you know this is a situation that has been created and we aren't none of these are ways to get out of it none of these are going to help he's going to die you know the abductors are going to descend in their morality that's just the way it's going to be you know all these little yeah. power changes mm-hmm. they're not going to change any of that um because this is already a road that we're on and it, no one's really looking for ways to 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 change it they're looking for ways to come out on top of course but uh that's just not going to to affect the outcome yeah well it's it's part of this you know, long, enormous struggle that if you really want to take several steps back is kind of almost as old as human civilization in the sense that the the powers that be will often use brutal means to maintain that control or to expand or solidify it even further. And those who are sort of deemed on the outskirts, the margins, the the people who are not being taken care of by the powers that be are stuck in this kind of almost no-win situation of how to, you know, how to assert themselves, how to have their needs taken seriously, how to, you know, how to find justice and freedom and peace and all of those things that we aspire to in the face of, you know, a system that really considers them disposable. And what I what I appreciate about this film is that it does take you below that narrative that the, the the power structure will say, well, these are just terrorists, you know. They kidnapped this man, a family man, a guy who's just down there to try to help improve the uh, the infrastructure of the society, and they just brutally shot him. Like that's the end of story. They're just they're just killers. It just proves the point that they are not to be trusted, not to be considered, not to be taken seriously. In fact, they're an enemy that needs to be stamped out and eradicated. It's almost to the benefit of those in power that it ended up this way because it reinforces the you know, that, that character as you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what the, what the Montan's character Santori realizes mm-hmm. once he's kind of gone down this role and he, he understands the logic, he understands the, the priorities and the values of this system that he's, that he's a part of. And there's that brilliant line where it's like, you know, and when, you know, he's confronted as an exploiter and he says, exploitation, what are you talking about? He says, well, you, you, you have the illusion of being one of the bosses of this system that you manage, but you're really just an errand boy. And he has that look on his face, like, whoa, <laughs> you just caught me, you know? Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, the, but the leftists will say, these are just brute oppressors. Uh, they are, you know, they're merciless, heartless bastards who are out to crush our people. And yet they have descended, you know, like, like you've both said, to uh, to values that they themselves are showing. They they would use that same murderous, oppressive technique if they were, you know, perhaps to to be in charge. Now you you know you can't predict the future entirely, but that is the that is the plight of an of an insurgency of a of an mm-hmm. insurrectionist movement that's trying to overturn the established order of things. But yeah, but the injustice just becomes pervasive. And I, I think that that is when I when I said at the beginning that there was sort of a dark humor and absurdity to it, because I feel that this is uh, this is his catch 22 film where there's just no there's just no way out of this for everybody. It's just this perpetual, like you said, perpetual cycle that will continue. And there's kind of a I, I feel sort of a, a, a sense of humor about that. Where mm-hmm. it's a, especially, you know, the finale where and, and that might be jumping ahead, but another guy gets off of the plane and we crash <laughs> yeah. into another yeah. set of eyes and the don 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 like it's just it's going to keep going on and on. And there's a there's a, a strangeness to why would you sign up for this mission when the U.S. government considers your life so indisposable that it's not going to release political prisoners and in oh, your, yes. and, and save right. you? And and the other side is why, you know, here you are again kidnapping someone else that's just as indisposable and not going to give you any leverage. The, you know, you're both kind of puppets of the, you know, enormous wealth and power of 
of the U.S. government and their interests. And mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh, solution out of this except just two people, you know, tank, not two people, but, a, a, you know, two organizations just, you know, in this dance in perpetuity. <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It feels very much like this endless eternal cycle. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and yet, and I don't know if that was the, the time to get into this, but I thought that it was fascinating um, the interview that we get on the on the Criterion disc between mm-hmm. Costa Gavras and Peter Cowie. That Costa Gavras talks about his purpose in making these films, you know, and with State of Siege uh, being to entertain and not to deliver yeah. a political message. Mm-hmm. And I I watched this and I think it is entertaining. It, it is so is. well put together. Yeah. And yet, that just that can't be true, right? I mean, this film is so incisive, and you know, he 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 got the idea to make this film because in 1970, when he was working on the confession, this incident in Uruguay happened that we've already talked about, mm-hmm. and so then he goes to Uruguay to kind of investigate. Um, meanwhile, he happens to be taking advantage of a of a I don't know. A, a time of, um, of of relaxation in Chile to mm-hmm. film this film before before there's any you know I, what, what do we call that that time period? I know that sometimes you know when we talk about it in Hungary and and uh, or the Czech a Republic, thaw, you know a thaw that, yeah, that's right that's right, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. A, a thaw in Chile um, uh, be, be you know where where Allende is is there and um, supports this this project for Costa Gavras to come in and film this. And I'm like, you're a player in all of this. Not not in the way that the people in the film are. You know, he, he's he's in a sense, I'm like, you're, you're kind of like one of the journalists in a way. Mm-hmm. You are you are investigating, you are going to these scenes of political turmoil and creating these films that yes are entertaining, but each one of them has also lifted up the lid, and it, I think you said it so well, David, and and gone deeper mm-hmm. to to show some of the actors and some of the and in so doing, showing some of the some of the things that are in place that just all you know make this so repetitive through history. I mean, we can we can see this in almost any time period in history, and uh, we see it today uh, that that this 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 back and forth, this, this doesn't, this doesn't go away um, in, in these stories. And I, I just, I love that he said, I'm going to make this an entertaining story. And, and mm-hmm. again, he does, but at the same time, I mean, come on, man, you, you just made three of the greatest political films of, of all time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, You are feeling a political message. <laughs> I think that that's a, a testament to his gifts as a filmmaker and that Costa Gravis is never above satisfying genre, right? Satisfying the needs of the, of the thriller action genre to, in order to make it entertaining, in order to make, you know, all of the, the political messaging that he has um, sell. And that's the best way to do it, right? Is, is to make that mm-hmm. film thrilling, to make it entertaining and satisfying. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I mean, I think Z, you know, created an audience. It showed that there's people who are definitely looking for, uh, you know, political thrillers that that definitely cut against the grain a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. there, let's let's face it, there's plenty of entertainment out there for right wing jingoists, if you will. Yes. You know, as far as you know, flag waving, chest thumping, rah rah, you know, go up and 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 really, every country does that to a certain extent. I mean, you know, Trevor and I have talked about some of the wartime films made in japan when they were you know celebrating the the imperial cause and the emperor and the army and all of that and and yes it's 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 pretty reasonable but but here's a film that is really kind of entertainment for people who lean to the left and the fact that this film did stir up such uh kind of you know ruffled a lot of feathers stirred up a lot of controversy even critics who you know i appreciate like andrew cyrus wrote two consecutive reviews in the village voice they're all linked in the show notes he was extremely critical of this film and i I really feel like at the time there was just this kind of appalled 
indignant, you know, outrage that uh, the U.S. government would be implied. And and some of the reviews from that time also, the, the more critical reviews, kind of nitpick the uh, sense that, oh, this isn't exactly how it went down in, in very nuanced ways, which is like, you know, that's, yeah, yeah if you want to get into the actual situation with Mitrione versus what we see depicted here in Santori, maybe they did streamline things a bit. Maybe they did kind of... I, I wouldn't say they made them black and white, but you know, you, you're telling a story, and you've got to get these complex and somewhat ambiguous, ambivalent elements across to a general audience. And I think again, he does that very well, and I think he does it in a way that's not just, you know, pandering, you know, leftist Marxist propaganda. I mean, if, if you're really reactive to that type of thing, if you're really strongly committed to a right wing ideology, yeah, maybe there's going to be elements of this film that you find offensive. But I don't really think it's that heavy handed. Um, and it's but, interesting because yeah. there's um, <clears throat> that reminds me of Jack Lemmon's character in Missing, where mm-hmm. he seemed to be has that point of view that, you know, coming into it, that the U.S. doesn't do anything wrong. And why would anybody think this way? And, you know, right. Or, or we're in this mortal struggle with communism. So if we give in at all, it's all over. Right. You know, they're going to just take over. So you have this absolutism, which again, that that kind of rigidity is exactly the the skeleton upon which all of these other atrocities are committed. I mean, that's that's the core. It's like, well, we have to win or else. And so, when you've got that mentality, then almost anything you do torture, imprisonment, assassination. I mean, you know, even mm-hmm. mentioning the fact that this was filmed in Salvador Allende's Chile uh, in 1972, uh, Allende, I think, was was thrown out of power, what, in 73, 74, very yep. soon thereafter. And mm-hmm. so, because they could not make this film in Uruguay. They have the license plate that says Montevideo, but all of these scenes <laughs> are shot in Chile because Uruguay was not going to allow a film crew in to make this story. I mean, they had been basically taken over by a, a right-wing military government. And so Chile was on the opposite side of that divide, if you will, under the Allende government for a short while until, uh, you know, with the assistance of the CIA and the endorsement of Henry Kissinger and all of that, uh, who just passed away the other day, um, that, you know, that government, the Chile's government was was kind of drawn back to a pretty extreme and brutal, brutal right-wing uh, dictatorship under uh, Pinochet. So, you know, all kinds of dirty business going on down there. And I think putting the benevolent-seeming activities of these aid organizations and these kind of, you know, efforts to make the world a better place and that uh, the mythology of the shining city on the hill that a lot of, you know, Americans have been brought up to believe in both then and now. I mean, let's face it, Vietnam is still going on. Mm-hmm. We're still very much in the thick of the Cold War. And there's all of this anxiety about what happens if the leftists get a foothold in South America. They've already got the problem with Cuba, uh, you know. And and again, these these ideas have not gone away by any means and are still pretty fervent drivers of all kinds of, you know, militant attitudes and activities uh, to this very day. You know, I, I, I 100% agree with you that these have not gone away. And yet it's films like this that I think, and, and the fact that during this time period, we came under kind of a revolution of how we saw the U.S. government, even those of us, you know, in in the, the U.S., their, you know, the, the trust, the the absolute uh, uh, certainty that things were, were good and that we were kind of righteous warriors in general starts to go down during this period, thanks mm-hmm. to the Vietnam and, and Nixon. And I think films like this have helped that when I watch it, I don't feel like it's denigrating my own identity. Right. But I, but you're right that that has not changed. And, and there are multiple, many things that, you know, it isn't just uh, the, these politics. I mean, you know, Disney's wish just comes out and there are people who get online and say, Hey, I'm not seeing anything objectionable here, but it's a Disney movie. Can you guys help me understand what they're doing underneath the surface that I should be offended by? (laughs) (laughs) And and sometimes almost (laughs) that, almost that, um, 
almost in that kind of language. And so, no, this, this, you know, some of this has, has not changed, you know, what you're talking about at the, when you, when you started David, like with Andrew mm-hmm. Saris and, and all of that, you know, where, where a film can, can challenge your perceptions and sometimes in a way that you think might be kind of dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. we are trying to do good things down there. Don't let the left take over, um, what what are we doing? You know, we can't be this critical. It, it will it will erode things that we have been working for years right. to build up. That's a fascinating part of the story too, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yes. and and there probably are civil engineers down in Uruguay who are there just to help create you know clean water lines and trash disposal and put in roads and you know so don't don't smear every foreign aid worker or peace corps member as this you know cia <laughs> double <laughs> endorsing agent, you know. tor- tor- they're, they're secretly just teaching torture <laughs> right right yeah. and, and, and 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 just even giving uh these agents that kind of plausible deniability that they, he probably was doing things about traffic control and public communications and stuff, but he had his little side thing going on over here as well. So that, you know, they're not dumb. They're going to give these people, you know, legitimate cover stories and, and they're going to cast the right part, you know, a wholesome, you know, strapping family man who, who goes to church and blah, blah, blah. So portraying these characters with all, with all that kind of nuance and complexity. I mean, there, there is a critique of, of Yves Montand, who's a very well-known leftist leaning and he and he's so suave he's so european and he's your american guy from indiana (laughs) (laughs) how dare they not cast (laughs) you know that correctly yeah usually just if you think about your your typical american he's probably a little bit more on the frumpy side horn rim glasses crew cut you know at that time so but again, that this all kind of points to, for me, uh, back to Jack Lemmon and Missing, that it was the, I feel like Costa Gravis was maybe commenting on the reaction of uh, someone like Andrew Saris or like those people. And it was like, okay, well, I'm going to make a movie where that guy is the protagonist and, you sure. know, the wolf, you know, the scales fall from his eyes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because the Santori's character definitely does have a, a, a moment of realization. You know, I really am just a pawn in this game. You know, yeah. Maybe yeah. I thought I was kind of one of the movers and shakers, and I was treated like a VIP. I got to live in this nice, fancy, gated community with with limousines and you know uh, bodyguards and all of that. Well, that all evaporated pretty quickly, didn't it? Once, it, yes, once he kind of outlived <laughs> his usefulness. Exactly. You know, David, talking about Yves Montan and his his reputation kind of takes me back to what may have been our very first podcast recording, or if not, it was our second, uh, where we talked about the Goran set, the Eclipse set. And uh, as part of that, uh, you asked me to watch, and I'm glad I did, um, uh, Godard's 1972 film oh yeah uh, to vabien yeah. uh, with uh, yves montan and you know the wonderful you know upstanding for in everybody's eyes american yeah. actress uh, jane fonda so <laughs> <laughs> it, daughter it of an american icon you know yeah, that, it's yeah. it's interesting to put all that into context to how how this may have been received at that time when it's talking about such contemporary issues with contemporary players in the mm-hmm. politics of those issues. Yeah. And in some ways, Montana is, is certainly going against type, you know, and, and the, the character that he's portraying here, but he is, he's such a great, just a presence. He's that's got such charisma, you know? And I mean, even, even in captivity, even as a hostage, he sure looks good in that suit. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but also, yeah, you know, there's there's many other interesting scenes. You know, the the state funeral, uh, the you know the the way that this is covered in the media, uh, you know, the government's ability to try to manage this situation by not giving away too much, and but also not not even having to publicly admit their servility to American foreign interests because they really are puppets themselves. I mean, they they do get the 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 privilege, if you will, the the comforts of of being kind of part of this um, the appeaser state, if you will, the, the the people who do the bidding of the of, of the American you know foreign interests, 
because it feels like, yeah, this is really, you know, even setting aside you know, the, the, the nations, this is how big power operates, you know, and, and I think to Costa Gavras's credit, I mean, he, in the confession, he's really talking about, you know, communists and socialist systems as the agents of oppression. And in Z, it, it's more, again, back to sort of the right wing uh, assassination of, of the leftist, you know, figure. So, but I, I feel like Costa Gavras isn't strictly targeting only, you know, Western affiliated governments. I mean, the confession being the, the great exception to that or the counterbalance to say that, you know, totalitarianism, whether you consider it from the left or the right, is is equally murderous and oppressive towards its people once they've determined who's on the ins and who's on the outs. So other thoughts about the film, uh, you know, um, Trevor, you talked a little bit about the, the, the interviews, the supplements, but uh, yeah, kind of just where are we at with uh, the recommendations and, and uh, your thoughts about, you know, about this film and its lasting impact? So again, I at the time that I first watched it, I really, really enjoyed it, but I had also just watched The Confession, and I think in mm-hmm. preparation I had rewatched Z, and it... It, it it struck me as the lesser of all of those mm-hmm. three, mm-hmm. you know, as, as some can sometimes happen this time rewatching it completely on its own. I didn't revisit any of the other ones. I realized how strong it is. And, and so it was probably just little things that I was like, Oh, I expected him to go this direction, but he went yeah. this other direction mm-hmm. that affected me the first time. So yeah, th- this is, th- these are three exceptional political thrillers and this is not a waning of of Costa Gavras's abilities at the end of it. I don't know if anybody thinks that. You know, I'm yeah. <laughs> probably probably trying to build up an argument that that no one is uh, is disputing. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have to necessarily pick a winner. You know, who's yeah. You know, but I mean, I think Z probably was the biggest commercial success, uh, and maybe maybe critically as well. Be, probably because it, partly it was fresh, it was new, it had that great soundtrack. Um, it was just this is kind nominated of, for many Oscars. Exactly right. Yeah. I, I think. And that and that established both a, a niche for Costa Gavras to continue operating in, which she did very well. But you know, like anything, you know, there's there's the first one, and then there's kind of the uh, the, the follow up efforts, which often tend to be diminishing, at least in, in public perception. But you're right; I think this is a very strong trilogy of films. I think it's also worth maybe mentioning the the screenwriter uh, Franco Salinas uh, is the guy who wrote The Battle of Algiers, which is another pretty you know, jolting. Great film. Great yep. film, yeah. And and he brings some of that sort of documentary reportage style, which that's that's what I felt was was really well done here. This really did feel like a pretty, you know, close to objective analysis of all of the problems that that grew out of this, you know, not necessarily impulsive, but desperate decision by the Tupamaro to the, we're going to, we're going to take it to the next level. We've, we've done nonviolent protests. We've done student demonstrations. <laughs> I have to laugh at that scene where they were playing the music out of the speakers. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they just run around and smash all the speakers. Yeah, and, it's, <laughs> and it's like, you know, they, they went like five or six different speakers with different yeah. songs and they, <laughs> they really milk that gag for all it was worth, but it really is. A, and it's also just, again, structurally within the film, a nice kind of lightning moment of comic relief and the otherwise you know fairly serious subject matter although again i think some of the ironic dialogue exchanges between i think hugo the the lead interrogator for the tupamaro and uh santore are are, they're pretty loaded there's some really great quotes and Mm -hmm. exchanges there because they really are both for me yeah putting both their 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 case their, their their best foot forward yeah, th- those were that was my my favorite part the first time and the, mm-hmm. this time around as well. That's that's what's so fascinating. We see both of them, like you say, putting their best foot forward and trying to communicate. And and it's it, you know because of who we are, because of the culture that we have grown up in, and and because often these characters are portrayed either simplistically as good. You know, like oh, the you know your perception is completely wrong. These are actual. These are actually the good guys, um, or as simplistically bad. It's it's 
great to see them in this situation where they're talking to each other to try to communicate. And we see the, the Tupamaro. I mean, they, they, the, when we first meet them, they seem so benign. They're doing some horrible things that would be absolutely traumatic to me. If I, if someone came up and and took my vehicle, it doesn't matter that they say, but we're not going to kill you. And in a half an hour, (laughs) come back and get your, get your car back. We just need to do this like that. That's still going to be something horrible. Um, that, but not as horrible as it, as it could have been. And sometimes what we would expect in a film like this, you know, where maybe they're just going to be extreme all of a sudden. Well, it's, but, it's the plight of the common people who have to live under mm-hmm. this crappy system where the government is oppressive and there's these insurgents that are trying to shake things up. And I just want to get out of with my life. You know, that's yes. uh, <laughs> again, part of that state of siege that everybody is kind of suffering. Mm-hmm. Even if you're choosing to be apolitical, it's going to get you somewhere or another. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. Good point too. Good point. Yeah. But it's just th- those interactions are, are what make this film so like rewatchable as yeah. times change oh, yeah. because yeah. this is a different world today than it was when I watched these back in 2015, you know, things have mm-hmm. happened really recently that this film resonates more strongly than it did back then. And I'm sure there will be other things. I think also illustrates how much things have not changed as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. a reason why this film still resonates. And <laughs> I guess even... for me, you know, the the that as, as I watched it, maybe the first time there was, you know, it was 2015. Yeah, this yeah. some things had not happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yep. it felt yes. like a safer perspective to watch this film in, and and this time around, it was quite a different experience just because of of all of the context since you know 2016. Well, yeah, just the the threat. Or, or not the threat, the the reality of of strongman governments popping up all over the place, you know, yeah. and in different parts of the world, and realizing that there's a very sizable chunk of our populations, our neighbors, our communities that would be perfectly fine that living underneath this. a military dictatorship if yeah. it'll keep those people in line, you know. Yes, <laughs> that that yeah. love the you know uh, culture of you know worshiping what do they call that when you worship the leader instead of, you know, like the North Korean idea, like that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. 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 It is. It's a kind of this hero worship and it, it's yeah. certainly very much enforced, but after a while it becomes natural because he's our guy. He's our savior. He's our, yeah. you know, he's the one who can lead us through, you know, all of the scary, terrible things that, that our enemies are threatening to do to us. You know, we have and to, you're, sort you're of, not taking the step back to think critically of this person or, right. the, you know, even being comfortable, like, Oh, I like some things about them, but I don't like things about them. Like that kind right. of, you're just all in without whatever they say or do. Yeah. Cause it's and all about loyalty and, and being unquestionable because that's the other thing right. too. You've, you've not, you can not only not, you not only have to be loyal, you have to be publicly expressing it. You have to be yeah. letting everybody know you are completely on board with this because if you're less than enthusiastic, that makes you a little bit suspicious, you know? Oh, yeah. If you have even complex feelings about it, yeah. like you're yeah. allowed to have com- complicated feelings about things. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, this movie really does brings all of that to a head and so yeah we can look at you know what's happening in ukraine and russia israel palestine mm-hmm. here in the americas as we get ready for another political election campaign and all of the legal stuff that's going on with the former president i mean it's just you know we're, we're in the thick of the soup here and this this film from you know 50 years ago now is uh just a little snapshot of kind of how these dilemmas just kind of endlessly play themselves out you know neither side is just going to kind of knuckle under and surrender say you know what your argument convinces me you you you've got it right you know that's that's the way it's going to be i mean sometimes experiences uh change our beliefs and and our alignments i mean i've gone through different phases of of what you might consider political affiliation over the course of my life and i think at this point i do see you know that there's there are truth claims and there's a certain degree of legitimacy you know by people who are actively concerned and engaged and trying to address these social problems. And yet, you know, the temptation to fall into corruption and oppression and suppression and all of those, you know, morally unjust remedies, uh, 
is is just right there you know um if you're if you're gonna pursue power uh you're you're playing with fire in that way and it's like i already said you you can't necessarily sidestep everything either you know because that kind of apathy or detachment uh creates a vacuum that uh you know forces of corruption will fill one way or the other so yeah that's that's our dilemma isn't it (laughs) we're kind of stuck in the middle yeah yeah all right well we are getting close to the end of our time so maybe let's just kind of catch up with each other a little bit i'm going to record a little afterward at the end of our conversation as i kind of maybe reflect a little bit on this uh, end of this season four and talk a little bit about what i have in store for season five and, and going forward but let's just kind of hear from each other brad i i want to hear a little bit about some of your adventures in the art world and and anything else you want to ch- share with listeners about what you've been up to lately and i'll do the same with trevor in a minute yeah sure so um yeah for those who don't know um i am an artist and uh, i've been working away uh painting and drawing and i've had kind of an awesome year if it's okay for me to say that about myself but like i've yeah, been yeah. in for <laughs> okay i just don't want to brag i'm canadian right we're trying to be like <laughs> humble um, i did this little been... thing over here I <laughs> um but we i've been in four galleries this year so it's kind of been exciting um i was in uh one here in toronto and then i was in the same gallery twice in berlin so i was in two shows in berlin sorry i so i was in three galleries four shows two shows in berlin and then um, just another show here um, outside of Toronto in this beautiful area, Prince Edward County. Um, it's really like a touristy. There's lots of wineries and antiquing. And it's it's yeah, when everyone... Gables, right? It, yeah. Kind of that thing. Yeah, like yeah. you're very... It's very like your Vermont kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, so mm-hmm. everyone goes, uh, leaves the city in the summer and goes and visits there. Um to you know get away from the city and to you know relax and then in christmas time it's really nice uh when because all the small towns they're very beautiful small towns and they're all you know decorated um for for the season and everything so um people go there to visit to see you know the lights and that kind of thing um so uh there's a, a gallery there um named uh maison de poivre uh, that's showing some of my pieces. Uh, they have their annual uh, Positive Masculinity in Art show. Um, and this is my second time being in it. I was in it last year, so I'm in it again this year. Um, so it's been fantastic. And uh, Fred and I were at the opening, and we had a lot of fun. So, um, And the other thing that I've been doing is I've been in school. So I've been in art school um, at the Academy of Realist Art here in Toronto, um, which is a great institution, and I have been learning uh, absolutely lots and really pushing pushing my skills further and further. So, so yeah, that's that's yeah. Well, your works are are really fascinating and complex and detailed, and yeah, it's it's kind of funny. You do a lot of process shots of the Instagram stories and just little reels that you put out there of, of filling in a certain portion of a of a work. That's it's been yes. kind of really fun watching I try you, to put myself you know, out there yeah. so that yeah. Yeah. people can see the the artists behind the works and yeah uh, you know feel feel more involved in the process well congratulations on your success brad i'm really uh, happy to encourage that and you know hopefully there's a link that we've got that uh you know follow him on instagram if, if, as a starting place and and uh see what you think of his work so absolutely yeah, absolutely i'll put that in the show notes mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, so Trevor, kind of tell us a little bit about what you got going on. I know you've got your bookish podcast and right. other things going on. So fill us in. Yeah, so I, I've i been doing the mooks and the gripes ever since 2008 as a blog. But a few years ago, I started doing a podcast with my friend Paul Wilson. Mm-hmm. And we've been going strong. And at this time of year, we like to, you know, reflect and do our what are our 10 favorite reads of the of the year? You know, 10 of the best books that we read, whether they were new to 2023 or or we just read them during this year, you know, something written, you know, maybe a century or two ago. And so that's what's coming up for us. Uh, we do yeah. that in a two-part episode, our, our, you know, our bottom five and then our top five. And it's it's a lot of fun, you know, to do that and and to to carry that on. I, I, I love... I love the movies. I love I love the books. You know, so it's so nice to have these various uh, places to go and talk with 
with friends and uh, people that I uh, just admire and enjoy their insights. And uh, so that that's what I've got going on on the other side of things. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and that's good. And we also are uh, continuing our Inside mm-hmm. the Box series, a podcast series. We released an episode on the complete Jean Vigo a few weeks ago. And I think we have the Michael Hanukkah trilogy yeah. on our agenda for early January. So, uh, a cheerful way to ring in the new year. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I always feel wintry in January, so it might actually perk me up. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, this has been a fun conversation. I really do appreciate both of you joining me for this uh, fascinating look at a, at a film that uh, speaks to a certain set of sequences and events at a place and time, but uh, continues to resonate in our world here as we approach the end of 2023 so yeah on that topic i think maybe i'm going to try to pull together another favorites of the year 2023 uh, episode for criterion cast so maybe i'll contact you guys and a few others to see if we want to get a panel together to talk about some of our favorite criterion releases uh we'll see oh, i love that all that that's a yep. great tradition we've been doing for quite a few years now and mm-hmm. uh we'll uh we'll put something together towards the the end of this month and uh give a give our listeners a chance to hear what some of our favorite uh, releases were of the past 12 months so with that i would have to say goodbye to brad and trevor and i'll be back in just a moment with a few more thoughts about uh, where i'm going with my podcasting project so thanks for listening in and we'll talk to you all soon I am to offer a few parting words as I wrap up this fourth season of the Criterion Reflections podcast, uh, looking back a little bit here and also looking ahead. So let's start with the uh, the retrospective, the reflection, if you will, about uh, where this podcast has been. This is the 50th episode of season four. We started back in January of 2021 with a uh, discussion about Kazuo Mori's Zadoichi at Large. That was episode 91. And uh, this is episode 140. So, yeah, a nice round number, 50 episodes for this uh, fourth and longest season of the podcast. I incorporated a lot of uh, uh, films that were unique to the Criterion Channel streaming service over this past uh, three years, nearly three years, I guess it is. Um, And that definitely lengthened things out as I... uh, you know, added titles that Cartier probably will never even consider putting on disc. But I thought, well, let's go ahead and talk about it anyways, because they were, you know, interesting movies of a year that uh, I guess, uh, you know, the early 70s in general were pretty formative years for me. And I really enjoyed my revisit exploration of the, the culture and the events and the media of the times uh, when I was... Uh, I guess 10 going on 11. I turned 11 in August of that year. So a young kid soaking up the world and, you know, by visiting these films some 50 years later, I got a chance to kind of get a, you know, a more informed sense of what was going on in the world around me as I was just beginning to come of age. But yeah, it has taken a long time to get through this single year over the course of nearly three years. And even by way of comparison, you know, I just finished this conversation about State of Siege. I recorded the episode about the confession that uh, Trevor and I were on and we talked about at some length here just now. That was back in 2018, June of 2018. So it's been over five years, almost five and a half years that it took for me to get from Costa Gavras's previous film to this one that we just finished talking about. And as I recognize (laughs) I'm a mortal being. There are a lot of movies that I would love to talk about as we uh, move forward in the, in the sequence here in my, my big spreadsheet and just in the flow of time. And so I am not going to be canceling my podcast, but I'm going to start doing more short form videos and reviews that might just be me. Um, talking about movies just to kind of accelerate things a little bit 
but I will continue this podcast for what I consider the more major titles. Uh, perhaps uh, the rule of thumb, at least going into it, will be Criterion titles that have a physical media release uh, that seem to warrant kind of a, a more in-depth conversation uh, as well as guests who are ready to adjust their schedules and, and be ready to talk about it with me so that we can try to maybe pick up the pace a little bit. But for a lot of these more minor films or maybe films that I want to just get around to talking about while I've watched them and they're fresh in my mind and just to kind of keep the sequence moving along, I'm going to be doing short, you know, four or five to ten minute video clips. Um, probably going to be basing them more on YouTube than TikTok um, because I think the horizontal uh, format works better. And uh, I feel a little less constrained about going a few minutes longer than if I was making pure TikTok clips. So that's a little look ahead. Um, for people who have signed up on my spreadsheet to talk about some of those um, Criterion channels, streaming-only releases, or maybe films from the Eclipse series, or other odds and ends, well, you know, I hope that's not too disappointing, but I hope you can understand that I, I do want to, you know, keep the sequence moving along and record at times that are convenient to me. Sometimes it's taken me, you know, several weeks or longer to find a date and time in which all my guests and I can get together. And that's not blaming or, you know, complaining in, in any way. It's just the realities of life and the challenges that it, you know, that I face in trying to coordinate uh, times where we can all get together and, and have these conversations that I and I know my, my guests enjoy quite a bit. And hopefully, as listeners, you get some benefit from as well. Um, I also just do want to take a moment to, to thank my guests. I'm not going to name them all one by one because then I'll inevitably forget to mention somebody and I don't have a list right in front of me. But, uh, you know, you folks who have you know, agreed to get onto these programs and talk them over with me and just do it for the love of film and, and free of charge and all of that, um, you know, I am so incredibly grateful and uh, appreciative of the times that we've spent talking about movies, the chatter before and after the episodes, even just the, the build-up and the studying and the prep work that I know goes into having a good take on a, a great a classic film. Uh, I don't take any of that for granted and uh, just really warmly grateful and, um, and, and, and just, you know, really want to return the favor however I can because... Uh, by, by appearing with me on this podcast, you've, you've played in a significant role in my life, my mental health, and my just satisfaction of uh, just going through this stage of my existence um, with friends and people who are kind of on my wavelength and maybe can understand and appreciate some of the things that I do about this uh, weird and bizarre world that we live in. And the artists who kind of help make some sense or at least uh, get some perspective on what's going on around us through these uh, incredible films that they put out there for us to consume and think about and in some ways become part of us. So yeah, I don't want to ramble on too long here, but I guess I just wanted to answer some questions that some of you might have as far as, so what about season five? So uh, for the time being, at least, I'm going to stay with my linear coverage of the 1973 films. I do still have that spreadsheet. I do update it every time Criterion Channel puts out new titles. I uh, take a look at what's uh, what's new, and I update my uh, spreadsheet for the podcast accordingly. And um, like I say, there may be some of the streaming-only titles that I will skip because they were on the channel some months or even years ago and are not necessarily easy for me to access these days. So I'll probably try to stay contemporaneous with what's currently streaming on the channel. Um, so if they have some new features that happen to have been released in my timeline, I'll, I'll find a way to weave them in, but I'm not going to necessarily be as you know, comprehensive. Obviously with, with this season, uh, four, I didn't do what was my custom in the past of talking about a bunch of short films and supplements that are found on the Criterion collection. Uh, I also skipped some films that were 72 releases, but are part of larger box sets. 
you know, stuff that was like in the Martin Scorsese World Cinema Project or other, you know, larger editions where I think oh, maybe I'll get to them when I talk about them on my Inside the Box project that I do with Trevor Barrett that I mentioned at the end of that first segment there. So, uh, yeah, I really am kind of at a point to say, let's go ahead and wrap up what we've been doing with Season 4 and coverage of 72. Uh, I, I'm really proud of what's gone into making these recordings. I've got quite a few hours of, I think, pretty stimulating and decent quality conversation. And I certainly hope people uh, you know, avail themselves of the opportunity to listen to some of that old stuff. You know, if a, if a movie crosses your radar and you want to find out what I said about it, if it was released by Criterion in the years 1969 through 1972, pretty good chance I've talked about it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I definitely am always in, uh, appreciate people who maybe give me feedback or comments on old episodes. I don't always respond maybe as uh, quickly or as thoroughly as I could. But um, anyways, yeah. I really am rambling now. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. I hope that if you've listened this far, if you've got questions or comments or feedback, please send it my way. I do uh, I do like to know how this uh, little project, this hobby of mine, sits with other people. So thank you for listening. Thank you for the support you've expressed, um, sometimes invisible, sometimes, uh, you know, you've shared it with me. It means a lot, and um, I thank you for hanging in there with me, and let's keep it going.